One of the nation's governors joins us next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Hey guys, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. That is my good friend, Vince Colonnese, and we are very excited to have one of our nation's leaders today. Vince, who, who do we have with us? Well, she's an American rancher, she's a farmer, she's a small business owner, and she's a politician serving since 2019 as the 33rd governor of South Dakota, a Republican. She has a brand new book out called Not My First Rodeo, which is now officially a New York Times bestseller. Governor Christy Nome, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to talk to you guys this morning. Great, great to have you here. This is, uh, as we're talking to you, July 4th, uh, having just concluded uh, this week. Two years ago, you got to do that with fireworks at Mount Rushmore. But uh, this year and last year under the Biden administration, uh, he's been denying you that celebration, no? He has been. It's been an interesting challenge for us. People ask me all the time, Christy, why is the fireworks such a big deal to you? Why is it important for you to be able to celebrate at Mount Rushmore on the 4th of July? And it's literally because Tourism is our second largest industry in the state of South Dakota. A lot of people come to our state. They come to Mount Rushmore to remember our founders, how they led us through challenging times and really appreciate the freedom that we have in this country. It's our chance to showcase our state and our country. And the Biden administration is breaking federal law by not allowing us to have that show there each year. So we are challenging them in court. We expect to win. There's a federal uh, statute on the books that says uh, through the Administrative Procedures Act that if we check all the boxes on environmental concerns, we meet all of the requirements for safety concerns, that we are allowed to have this fireworks show and they're still denying us the permit. So we're hopeful that our challenge will win and that next year we'll be back celebrating at Mount Rushmore, all of our liberties and freedoms of this country. I, I hope so. It, you know, it, it strikes me as just like, just a pettiness out of the Biden administration looking to turn back things that Donald Trump put in place. So I know you had petitioned the Trump administration to to do that very thing, and then you succeeded in uh, 2020. But in 2021 and 2022, no dice. It's like, why why do that? It's, it seems small. It is. It's very punitive. And I think it's specifically targeted at me and the state of South Dakota. And and to be honest with you, when we asked if we could have permission again from the National Park Service to have this permit to be able to conduct our show, much like we did in 2020, we invited we invited President Biden to come too, invited him to come be a part of that ceremony and that celebration. So uh, it's not that we're picking and choosing which presidents we want to include. We'd be thrilled if presidents would continue to visit this historic site. So what what is uh, the Biden administration's uh, reasoning and rationale. Have they given a reason or is it just, we don't, you know, we don't want to help. Well, I think Carolina, they've, they've expressed several Dakota, different. Yeah. They've expressed several different concerns. Uh, the first one was COVID. They were concerned about the spread of COVID. Of course, it's an outdoor monument um, and the challenges there are not unique to any other place in the country that had a fireworks display. Uh, certainly last year or this year. Also, then they cited environmental concerns or water quality concerns and then consultation with our tribes. Uh, we had met all of those requirements and, and had had agreement between state and local and federal officials that, that we could conduct this uh, safely and in consultation with those tribes, but still the permit was denied. So, you know, a lot of their arguments don't have any credibility at this point, And that is why we are so strong with our challenge in federal court. 
Yeah, I just thought it was a cool thing to see it, Jason, just to see the fireworks over Mount Rushmore. It's very picturesque uh, and a neat event, and it'd be cool if it keeps going. I talk a lot about planning this event in my book. Um, you know, it, I have a whole chapter on what it took to put that uh, display together, what it took to meet all of the requirements, how monumental it was at that time in our history to celebrate our freedom and to this monument when all across the country, when this was held in July of 2020, if you remember, uh, people were tearing down statues. They were tearing down monuments to our leaders and we were doing the exact opposite here in South Dakota. We were celebrating uh, our, our leaders knowing they were flawed individuals, they weren't perfect, but we still appreciated the sacrifices that they made for our country to give us the life that we have today. So <clears throat> I, I assume you're talking about tearing down Confederate monuments. Is that the mm -hmm. leadership that we should be emulating here in the United States? You know, I think there's things we can learn from each of those leaders and it's a part of our history. And we should celebrate it? So we I think should celebrate that, Confederate leaders. Who... Oh, I'm, I'm not saying you celebrate each individual leader for the whole uh, actions that they have in their life, but we can learn from them. And then I think that what we saw over the last several years is a desire to completely erase them and ignore uh, well, what happened I, the, in our country. The argument country. that I, I've heard I is that you history, want to put them in a, in a museum, correct? I think that our was... history is incredibly important to us. Sure. And by tearing them down, we don't get the opportunity to teach our children and our grandchildren really about what this country went through and how we chose a different path than what those Confederate leaders wanted. So wouldn't wanted, you put them we... in a museum where you can do, you know, where education happens and you can educate them on that rather than having it uh, as something you celebrate? You wouldn't put, you know, in Germany, I don't think they have any any statues of Hitler or, or of their leaders and they still don't forget what happened there, correct? I think that it's important to keep it all in context, that those, sure. those statues and those monuments uh, for every individual that we have across this country uh, have lessons to teach us. They start conversations that when you see them, you talk about them, you recognize the true history of this country. We wouldn't be who we were today if it wasn't for the people that came to this country searching for a new way of life. And we had crisis and conflict over the years uh, we had a lot of division in this country. I think that's actually something we could learn from today. A lot of people look at what we see going on in the public square as unprecedented and ugly and divisive, and it is, but our country has been through hard times before. If you look at back what happened during the Civil War, what happened uh, when you were going through other challenges such as the 70s and the division and the political riots that were happening, uh, we made it through those times, and, and we are a strong country. And even though we have some division right now, we still, with civil discourse and public policy debate uh, and treating each other as human beings and having conversations, we can end up with better policy yeah. that can bring this country back together. Also, there were some very destructive uh, and, and, and lunatic efforts to try and purge some of the nation's leaders that there really is no controversy around or shouldn't be. It's like, remember, San, the San Francisco School District right. tried to but change the, yeah, the names. But you're, you're gonna, hold up, you're, hold up. Let me just make the point. You're going to take that out of context. Let me just so, make the point. Bro. No, no, no. But this is the, these are the excesses of these passions, right? So you've got the San Francisco School District tried to rename schools that are named after Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln. In New York, they removed statues to Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, these were preposterous excesses, but they're born out of... Uh, some of those moves where there were statues being torn down. And there's a big difference between having a mob tear down a statue and having a people just in that town decide to remove it through sure. the, the legitimate means, right? So there yeah, have been- I, mm -hmm. I think that, there's, that we have some level of agreement here mm -hmm. that there, there's a process that you should go through. I, the, I think the only thing that I would disagree 
with either one of you in is the idea that uh, we should honor, for example, you know, there, there are military installations in this country that are named after people who fought against the United States of America. Like that's, that's to me is very problematic. When you have statues in towns, you had, you know, uh, a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a, uh, one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan in a town that is majority black. Like, I think that those things are, are problematic. Would you agree, Governor? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to me because during 2020, when we were having this celebration, we had to protect Mount Rushmore. Uh, we had to have National Guard, Secret Service. We had to have FBI, local law enforcement out there protecting Mount Rushmore because people were calling those founders slave owners and members of, of um, anti, um, or they were calling them racists and telling them us that they were flawed individuals who and I recognize that we never said that these individuals were perfect. We never, but they also are people that, that, that were founders of our country. So there's many people that were trying to attack, blow up, pour red paint down Mount Rushmore at that point in time, because Mount Rushmore wasn't even something that they could defend or that they were willing to continue to allow to be in our Black Hills. So, you know, the divisiveness and the willingness to tear down every single monument in the country at that point in time, I think was very destructive for our country. The debate we're having right now, I think is fantastic. I think it's great to have these conversations. That wasn't what was happening in 2020. Right. Uh, we saw yeah. a lot of anger. We saw a lot of violence happening and people that were out there trying to destroy every single monument in this country because of an agenda that they had just bent on destruction and destroying our way of life. Yeah. Can, if I can, I'd like to, to because just because of our limited time with the governor, I'd like to ask about um, sort of your your place in the United States of America right now, uh, Governor Nome, uh, because, uh, you know, going into you know, 2020 and 2021, certainly you've talked at length, and I think a lot of people have given you credit for uh, the way that you responded to COVID and said that you're not going to lock down your states like other states did. And of course, we saw uh, the economic benefits that certainly existed in South Dakota as, res as a result of that. Uh, but as your star was rising, there was also the issue of this transgender bill that went before you, uh, and it was to ban men from playing women's sports, if I could distill it down, but ultimately to keep people in the sport that's associated with their biological sex. It was known as HB 1217. Um, you, you, you issued what was known at the time as a style and form veto and uh, registered your objections to it. You later followed with an executive order uh, banning men from women's sports. And then this February, I believe, you signed into law. Um, a piece of legislation that you proposed uh, that would ban men from women's sports. Can you give us a, I know, I know, again, due to time constraints, you probably could go on forever about this, but give us a summary of why it is that you vetoed that legislation in the first place and what made it safe to make it a law this year? Well, the bill that was placed on my desk um, back a couple of years ago that the legislature generated was very flawed. It would have immediately ended up in court and been um, upheld and set precedent that wouldn't have allowed me to protect girls sports. Uh, I made some changes to the bill, sent it back to the legislature and they rejected those changes. So the bill died. That very same day, I issued executive orders saying that only girls could play in girls sports in our state and protected them until we could pass a good bill that would be uh, in statute, that would be the strongest bill in the nation, that would make sure that if it was challenged legally, that it would win in court and that we would be able to continue to make sure that there was fairness. And this issue for me, I've always talked about as being a fairness issue. I want our women to have an opportunity to compete. 
on a level playing field to be successful, uh, potentially go on, earn scholarships, play professionally if they'd like to, uh, but biological men should not be playing in girls' sports. What, what role, you know, you talk about um, the precedent, again, mm -hmm. I guess and you would have been one of the early states to have banned men from women's sports. Uh, when you did sign uh, the legislation in February, when you actually, when you introduced mm -hmm. it uh, in December, uh, your spokesman uh, told Fox at the time that one of the reasons this was possible uh, seems to be that other states, his quote was, other states have linked arms. As Governor Noem urged at the time, she's excited to protect girls sports at both the K through 12 and collegiate level, just as she's done with her executive orders. And those, those states included places like Florida, Alabama, West Virginia. Were you waiting for them to go first to see what happened to them before deciding to pass this, to, to introduce and then pass this into law? No, I was making sure that we were doing this in a smart way that we would win. For me, uh, it's important to win, not just to have the argument and do what's politically right and then have, lose the battle at the end of the day. And if that bill had been passed, the original flawed bill, and it would have ended up in court and been overturned or even just held up in court for months or even years, men would have been able to play in girls sports in our state and it would have become normalized and been something uh, that they would have been able to do. And I couldn't have done anything as governor to protect girls sports. I wanted to make sure that I had the ability to keep those programs intact the way that they were and keep them fair until we had a strong bill in place. So that's why I did executive orders uh, to keep them there and to keep our uh, girls sports protected so that we could get a good bill on the books that could be defendable. So do you, so so, do you think, sorry, Jason, I just ahead, one last item on this. Sure. I, do, you, do you think that the criticism of you from conservatives was unfair, that, that you were poorly treated in this saga? Absolutely. Yeah, I tell everybody. It was, it was pretty surprising to me um, because nobody told the truth, even my friends. You know, we had, uh, I think that it's interesting, the political uh, environment that we're in, in that I knew that Democrats and liberals would attack me because they obviously, many of them would like to see a biological males playing in girls sports. But I was the first time really in a discussion on a policy like this that I had been attacked by my friends. Uh, and nobody covered the fact that that very same day that the bill failed, that I did executive orders. Nobody talked about the fact that years before, when I was in Congress, that I fought to protect girls' sports and the sport of rodeo in our state and won. So I had a long history of, on this issue of wanting fairness. And it was surprising to me that conservatives, who maybe had a different agenda for trying to come after me, were willing to distort the truth um, on what was really going on here in our state. Could that, it, are you suggesting an agenda related to presidential politics, like preferred candidates in 2024 or something? I think there's the potential for that. Absolutely. I think that, you know, and that's, that's what politics is. You know, you, you have to do what's right. You recognize that you're going to take heat and that's why it's important to have strong leaders. Um, you know, there, there may be people on the left because of different belief systems that are opposing you, but you may have people that uh, believe much like you do that are coming after you because they see you as competition. I don't know really what was going through everybody's minds at that time, but I do know for a fact that what we did here in South Dakota was the right thing to do. So Governor Nome, I'm wondering how big an issue this is in South Dakota. Do you have an estimate for how many uh, trans athletes you have in South Dakota? I don't know how many trans athletes that we have, um, and we certainly haven't gone out and, and specifically tried to, to figure that out. I would say that we do have some that are competing, that we 
Uh, we do have them at the K-12 level and at the collegiate level. And so it is an issue and it's important to make sure that we protect the fairness in our sporting uh, events at the K-12 and public school level, as well as at the collegiate level. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm also not familiar how, the, how this would work. So if you, and, and I don't wanna spend a whole lot of time on trans issues, but I, I was wondering like, if you had a, tr a trans athlete, um, let's say it's, it's, is it Leah Thomas were to come and compete against the University of South Dakota? Would she not be permitted to com compete under, you know, under the rules that that you guys have created? That is correct. Okay. Now I, I wanted to move on and, and talk about some of the more uh, recent mm -hmm. issues that uh, people have been discussing and are relevant to South Dakota. Um, so in the aftermath of Dobbs and, and the overturning of Roe, many people fear that. Uh, Obergefell versus Hodges is in jeopardy. And many Republicans have accused Democrats of overreacting, but you say the constitutionality of same-sex marriage is still up for debate. If the SCOTUS were to overturn Obergefell, would you support a ban on gay marriage in uh, South Dakota? Uh, Alita was very clear uh, in his discussions on Roe v. Wade and, and the decision that was recently made that that this decision does not impact a, another decision that has to do with gay marriage. So I think a lot of people are speculating and a lot of people are concerned that this decision means something for future decisions. And I think that it's irresponsible for, for that type of speculation to happen. The justices were quite clear that this sets no type of precedent or paves the way for any kind of a certain decision or an outcome on the subject of same-sex marriage. But Governor Noam, that's what that's what SCOTUS decisions do. They create precedent. So you, you don't believe, and, and again, I'm, I'm giving you, a, I, I guess, a completely slight. different topic, though. It's a completely yeah. different topic, completely different decision and completely different case. And, and that's what I think we see a lot in the news cycles is people speculating. Uh, but the justices were, were clear that each case will be decided based on its merits and how it lines up with the Constitution and, and what the laws are. Okay, so what is your view on gay marriage? Can we, can we hear that from you personally? Well, I'm not a supporter personally of gay marriage. Um, I have um, you know, my faith and my background and belief system. Uh, I believe that marriage is a sacred uh, agreement uh, that involves a person's faith or religion. But I think that that is why I said in that discussion earlier is that I, across this country, people will continue to debate those laws and continue to debate uh, those different situations in each of their states. What happened with Roe v. Wade was that the Supreme Court fixed a wrong decision that they made almost 50 years ago. Um, now they will return that decision-making power back to the states, which is how it should be handled and should have been handled the entire time. Now, every state's laws will look different. Uh, South Dakota has a ban on abortion today, except to save the life of a mother. Um, but every state will look different. If you look at what the New York governor has said, mm -hmm. she wants her legacy to be that it will be a destin destination location for people to come and have abortions. That's not our story in South Dakota. So um, and that is not what we've embraced. And, and right now what's happening is appropriate at the federal level, that they are returning that power back to the states where the right. state legislators closer to the people will be able to make the decision on what their laws look like at home. So in your mind, is Obergefell a wrong decision that needs to be righted? 
I think we'll continue to talk about the discussions that are going forward. I've been focused on this issue with these decisions in running my state. Let me, uh, I want to I ask you about, um, you know, the book, first of all, Could just give us a summary. Is not my first rodeo. Uh, is, is this a look back at, at you, at your life? Oh, definitely. I think a lot of people thought it would be a very political book um, and debate policy issues. And there's some of that in there. And there's some stories that people haven't heard before about political leaders in this country. Sure. But a lot of it is just my life lived so far. Most people only heard my name the first time, more than likely, when liberals started attacking me for the decisions I was making in our state in 2020. But uh, this will help them understand a little bit about how I made the decisions that I made. Um, and understand how I grew up, uh, that I didn't come from a political family at all, um, that I was raised by a dad who was a cowboy and tough, and he raised us to be problem solvers. You know, he said, we don't complain about things, we fix them, and that our, our politics wasn't talked about, it was lived. So those lessons and stories from probably the American West is what people are a little hungry for right now. We found during COVID that a lot of people that were in cities took the opportunity to go visit small towns in rural America. And a, a lot of these stories reflect that way of life. It really yeah. is the story of South Dakota and a testimony to the people here. Sure. And your biography is pretty useful for the coming food shortages too. You know, being a farmer, a rancher, you'll be, you'll be good to go. I mean, I, you do think about like, what does the future hold with all this economic turmoil? And I was, I was, in, I was taking an inventory of my own abilities earlier this week. I'm like, could I actually grow the food necessary to feed my family? <laughs> Uh, Christine Ohm's got that ability. <laughs> well, you know, we really do feed the world. And I've been talking about food security as a national security issue for about 15 years now. You know, it's always been a policy of the America, uh, United States of America to grow our own food. We knew that when we had our own food produced and provided here in our country, we controlled our own destiny. When we rely on other countries to feed us, that's really when they control us. And what most people have been ignoring for many years is that our enemies, uh, China, other countries have been buying up our chemical companies, our fertilizer companies, our processing facilities. Now they're buying up land all over the United States. If we think a pandemic was scary, wait until we rely on our enemies to control our food and people go to the grocery stores and there really is no food and no hope of getting more. So that's the challenge we have to wake up to and people need to recognize the value of having farmers and ranchers here in the United States and having them be American owned companies so that we can continue to feed ourselves. So you, you had criticized President Trump at one point, uh, former President Trump for the, uh, for the tariffs. Um, did you get a lot of heat for, from that from other conservatives and, and, uh, and Trump supporters? Um, and do you still stand by those? Well, I got into quite a few fights with different people over farm policy. Um, farm policy uh, was a food policy uh, discussion for me. Uh, we always had farm bills and different pieces of legislation to create a safety net. I, farming is a huge gamble in this country. Really, literally, farmers go to the bank, borrow money to buy land. Then they go back and borrow money to buy machinery and cattle. And then they go back to the bank and they borrow money uh, to buy their seed, fertilizer, chemical, and then they put it in the dirt. And they hope that it'll rain and the sun will shine and that months later there'll be something out there that they can go pick up again and sell and make a living. I tell people all the time, you can farm for 20 years and make a pretty good living, but uh, you can have one bad year and lose everything. So our policy has always been, we wanted to make sure that there was many, many farmers uh, so that we had a diversified supply 
and one person didn't control the supply and that food was affordable in the United States. We wanted every family to be able to go to a grocery store and be able to afford a loaf of bread, a jug of milk. And um, I got into a lot of fights and discussion. I talk about it in my book quite a bit too, with other people in my own party over the fact that this food policy was incredibly important to our country and that that safety net was something that was in our national security interests. Do you think we need a president from rural America? I mean, oh, we've I had think a pre that, president never, from New York and then one from Chicago, uh, you know, do you think that it's, it's time we had a president who's really from rural America? I think we've got, um, we've got, um, need a president that loves this country that gets up every day wanting to solve problems. I, you can pretty much, if you are a person who's teachable, who gets up every day wanting to learn from everybody you interact with, you have the ability to be a good leader. Uh, but people who, who don't want to learn, who don't want to understand this country um, will have a challenge. I want a, I want a president that, that is really approaching the job as being a servant, as being somebody who recognizes it's a hard job. And some days are going to be miserable days, but you're doing it for the right reasons. I think anybody who has gotten up since they were a little kid and their number one goal has been to be president of the United States, um, they probably wouldn't make the best president. Um, people who want the job that bad, I think, are looking for the power more so rather than looking to serve people. They, they say that uh, presidential politics is a matter of timing for any individual politician. And there's a moment that arrives, and that's usually when you have to seize it or else it disappears. And I, I think of, uh, I always think of uh, uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. There were a lot of Republicans at the time pushing him to run in 2012. He turned it down uh, many that during, uh, during that phase, decided to run in 2016. By the time he arrives on that debate stage, he's got a scandal behind him in the form of Bridgegate. And Donald Trump sounds more authentic than he does on that stage, more like mm -hmm. he's the alpha that, that Chris Christie was once seen as. Um, so everyone's got a moment. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've got a moment? Is this it? Are you, is 2024 the kind of moment that you need to seize? I don't feel that way. I feel as though I wanna contribute. I wanna live a life of significance. Um, there's a lot of other people I'm sure that, that want to be president. I'm not convinced that it has to be me, um, but I will get up every day and do what I can do to, to serve my state and continue to serve our country. Would, would, a, would Donald Trump announcing a run for president be a field clearing uh, thing? Like, in other words, if he announces, and there's some reports that he may announce very soon, mm -hmm. um, would, that, would that, for instance, preclude you from ever making an announcement for a 2024 run? Well, I've said that if President Trump runs, that I would support him. Uh, I think he's got a significant uh, loyal following in the Republican Party that it would be very difficult for anyone to beat him in a primary. Um, but, you know, I don't know if it necessarily is a field clearing, but there's a lot of people who would choose not to run if he does decide to. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'll just tell you someone on the left, uh, just just a little little free game for you. <laughs> uh -huh. I, on the left, with some of the issues that the country is having right now, the best thing that could happen for Democrats is for President, former President Trump to run mm -hmm. because he fires up the left. You know what I mean? Yeah, Every, I, I'll tell you right now, if DeSant, DeSantis would be much harder to beat, you know, I, and I think you would be even harder to beat than Trump because the left gets fired up for Trump. We could start running ads. People will get excited. And, you know, you can actually say, hey, we need okay. to stop Trump. There's already the infrastructure for people, Republicans against Trump, Trumpism. And you can show all kinds of ads of January 6th. 
I can tell you, I think, you know, your your party and your cause would probably be better off with you, Governor Nome, or or someone, you know, like uh -oh. you. The Jason I, Nichols endorsement. There it I, is. I, I, I didn't give an endorsement. <laughs> no, I, he I did not. Said, did he? I, yeah. I'm only, I'm only saying I'm I'm giving you guys some some free political game, but you guys are gonna I'm sure you're gonna ignore it. Your party is gonna ignore it. But I, I do want to ask you um about uh your religious refusal bill uh, that you signed. So under this bill, and and correct me if I'm if I'm misunderstanding anything, um, under this bill, on the basis of religious belief, someone can deny service based upon sexual orientation or even perceived premarital, uh, pre perceived premarital uh, sexual relationship. Is that, is that correct? Which bill are you referring to? I'm, I'm trying, is this the right of a business to decide yes. who they serve and who they don't serve? Well, why would we not have a bill like that and a statute that allows a business owner, which it's private property to make that decision themselves? I think we've seen some, yeah. this court discussions and debates and and results that have backed that up in the constitutionality of that being a right that they have as private business owners. Right, and that was the exact same argument argument that segregationists made. Like, <laughs> I don't have to serve you because this is my private business and I have, I don't believe that this should occur because you know, I don't want you sitting next to this group of people. So, but at any rate, I'm, I'm wondering because Title VII of the Civil Rights Act uh, prevents discrimination against LGBTQ people in employment. So I'm wondering, does it make sense that a business can discriminate, can't discriminate in hiring, but can discriminate in service? And, you know, again, I mean, I, you know, I'm wondering also what happens, you know, when a business owner says, you know, it's my beliefs that I don't want to serve this person of this religious background or, you know, or of this, of this race or this, you know, or, you know, or an interracial couple. How well, the, the constitutionality of religious freedom has been protected in, in court decisions uh, that have backed up a lot of these statutes that we've seen in different states. So, um, so this religious freedom is an incredibly important part of the background of America. That's why the people that originally came to this country came was seeking religious freedom that people couldn't tell them necessarily that they had to worship one God, that they had to worship a specific and attend a specific church. Uh, so those decisions uh, based on, on that, we can, we can certainly have a debate and discussion around the policies that trickle off of that. But I do definitely think uh, that, that what this country's founding was, was based off of those protections of those individuals and their businesses to make those decisions of who they serve. Also, I, I, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, on, on this Go law ahead, in particular, Follow. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it a matter of, you know, it's not that the businesses um, can decide not to serve gay people. It's that the businesses can't be compelled to violate their religious conscience. So it's in other words, if a gay person comes into a, a, a bakery and orders a cake, they can get a cake. But mm -hmm. if they order a cake that says, you know, you, you know, this is my marriage to so and so my gay marriage. Basically, if the person says, well, that part of it violates my religious conscience. They, they shouldn't be compelled to write a message on the cake that violates their conscience. Is that, do I have that right? That is correct. Yes. Okay. That, that wasn't what you said earlier, but I, I'll, I'll grant you that, you know, that's what the bill says. So, you know, again, um, 
do you fear that sometimes this could be manipulated for just to discriminate against people? So a baker can say, I don't want to bake, you know, happy bar mitzvah for, for yeah. someone because, you know, well, I would, I would say that, that I don't speak in hypotheticals, but certainly you could see any single law or statute be twisted and utilized to the detriment of people and the detriment of freedom and people living the life that they so choose. So unfortunately in this country, <clears throat> we see that over and over again. And it's something that every state will look at, every leader looks at. And my job in my state is, is to do uh, and operate what the role of governor is and to continue to make recommendations. When I campaign for office, I talk consistently about who I am, my faith, my background, my belief system, my values. And then I ask people to support me and ask if they'll vote for me. And then I follow through um, and lead the way that I told them that I would and hope that they'll support me again should I choose to run for reelection. So that's the process in this republic. And there may be people that, that disagree with my faith and disagree with you know, my value system, but that doesn't mean that I'm not fair and that I don't as a leader uphold the laws that are in my state. And that when the public makes decisions on, on what they want to see happening here, that I'm not someone who does my job. I do do my job, but I also take very uh, much to heart uh, the foundation of this country. And I don't want to be a leader who degrades that, breaks it down and doesn't keep the integrity of the constitution, the bill of rights, and what each individual is granted for personal responsibility and freedom and liberty. So I, I just want to get back to the one question. And, and I, again, I do not doubt your uh, commitment to service at all. You mm -hmm. know, um, I, I do want to ask, since you, you were, you know, my question initially was, you cannot, according to the law, uh, say, I can't hire you because of your sexuality but I can refuse you service. Do you think that that makes sense? And, and would you oppose, do you oppose Title VII or the Civil Rights Act? Do you think that perhaps you should be able to say, I can't hire you because- No, no I never once said that. And, and no, that no, would no, be I'm speculation on your part. And, and I'm not so suggesting I, that you said it. I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm asking you. No, absolutely not. Okay. so so. You believe it, it does make sense that you can say, I can't discriminate against hiring you. I will hire you, but I can refuse you service. That is the law today. And it certainly is appropriate for us to follow that law and to make sure that, that it is something that we're upholding. Absolutely. I want to ask uh, Governor Nome. Uh, I just saw, we just saw the news in the past week that New Hampshire put out a, a poll, a survey. Uh, with among Republican voters, first in the nation uh, primary. Um, and they found that the net approval ratings for three Republicans were pretty high. Uh, and first was Ron DeSantis, the second, Donald Trump, the third net approval rating, Kristi Noem. Uh, what, what message do you take from that? And will we see you continue to try and grow your national profile uh, going into 24? You know, I didn't, I don't spend much time thinking about that. I appreciate that. That's always good to hear, but it's not necessarily reflective of the job that I'm doing here in South Dakota. So I'm running for reelection in our state. I'm hoping the people here will trust me to, to serve them another four years. And we're doing very well. We've got the number one economy in the country. Uh, we've got incomes going up here faster than anywhere else. We've got low unemployment numbers. 
our kids are leading the country in educational outcomes and we really are thriving. Thousands and thousands of people are moving to our state because they wanna live somewhere the government respects them. I think that's incredible and it really is a, a testimony to what we've done here and the type of life that we facilitate uh, by the laws that we that we enact and uphold. So I'm I'm excited about this next four years. We've got some great opportunities in front of us. And I think the country needs a little bit of optimism and hope. South Dakota has been able to give that during these dark days. Yeah. You know, I do. You have to note, though, it's a typical pattern as a pre you write an autobiographical book as a precursor to a, a presidential <laughs> announcement. And you just so happen to have it's a true. New York Times bestseller is just out. Yeah, I I wouldn't know that. I know that the book was being worked on for two years ago. So um, it takes a long time for these things to come out. But Fair. as you Fair. said, you know, um, I guess timing is everything. It sure is. Right. Is there is there anything that you would have you would have done differently uh, in your first term as governor? Uh, particularly, you know, it was a, it was a really challenging time with COVID. Um, there was certainly a, a really tough moment in South Dakota. And, you know, as we stated, you got some criticism. Is there anything that, that you would have changed or done differently in hindsight? No, I, I tend not to look back other than to really recognize what we went through. Most people are talking about COVID, but what they don't remember is that in 2019, as soon as I was sworn in as governor, within a couple of months, we had a bomb cyclone hit the state. It was devastating. Uh, we had 63 of our 66 counties be declared federal disaster areas. So all of 2019, uh, we dealt with flooding and FEMA and people who were devastated and infrastructure um, by the billions gone. And that's what we did all of 2019 was deal with that crisis. So I thought for sure that 2020 was gonna be better and yeah. easier. And then we had a pandemic. So. Uh, it's just been a, a little bit of a challenging several of years, but South Dakota has stood strong and done very well. So we're focused now on what we can do to meet the housing needs that we have uh, with all the people moving in to get people trained to get into all the jobs and skills that they need to really continue to pursue their careers. And we're excited about that. All right. Well, I, uh, South Carolina, I got South Dakota. I did the same thing. South Dakota <laughs> Governor uh, Christy Nome, thank you so much. We'll have you back again so Jason can ask you about your workout routine because I know oh. we want to we want to talk about those guns <laughs> at some point. There. Okay, hey, sounds great. There are things that unite all Americans. And, that's and, right. You know, exactly. That, that's one of them. And thank you so much, uh, Governor Nome, for giving us your time for being willing to answer you know some some questions. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. You. you guys have a wonderful day. You too. You too.